from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. We are at the start of a commercial arms race in artificial intelligence that has thrilled some and alarmed others. For many, it's both. And there's no shortage of heady proclamations about where AI is headed. Here's Google CEO Sundar Pichai in April. You know, I've always thought of AI as the most profound technology humanity is working on, more profound than fire or electricity or anything that we have done in the past. You know, we are developing technology, which for sure one day will be far more capable than anything we have ever seen before. Far more profound than electricity or fire. Andrew Ng, a well-known AI expert, calls it the new electricity. Now, there's no doubt we are in the middle of a major hype cycle at the moment, and statements like that obviously fuel it. But there's actually some important historical context to them, because we can look to recent history to see how electricity completely reorganized our economy during the Second Industrial Revolution. Before electricity, factories were organized around steam engines and water wheels, and the power could only be transmitted through these pulleys and crankshafts, so the equipment had to be pretty close to the central power source. That's Eric Brynjolfsson. He's the director of the Stanford Digital Economy Lab. And a few years ago, I was really starting to explore where automated technologies are headed. And I read a book co-authored by Brynjolfsson called Machine Platform Crowd. I interviewed him for a show called Illuminators, and it informed how I think about this moment for AI. He cited the economic historian Paul David, who details this historic shift in the economy thanks to electricity. Because before electricity, it was really difficult to start and stop centralized steam-powered machines. After electricity, you had the option of distributing the machines and having each piece of equipment have its own small, medium, or large electric motor. They could come in all sizes and shapes. It made factories more spread out, more spacious, cleaner, safer. It fundamentally reshaped industry. But the same thing is happening today, that these technologies give us all sorts of new options for organizing work, but it takes entrepreneurs and managers and maybe sometimes professors some time to think about how we would want to reorganize work. And those co-inventions, as I sometimes call them, are where the real work comes from these uh, general purpose technologies. One of my favorite sayings goes something like, we often overestimate what we can do in a year, but underestimate what we can do in a decade. And I think with really difficult transformative technologies, it's more like we overestimate what we can do in a decade, but underestimate what we can do in a generation. And then things just seem to change all at once. That's true for energy, and it's true for artificial intelligence. I guess that's the nature of exponential curves, is that they just keep getting more and more wondrous and and the human brain is really bad at understanding how exponential curves will continue to grow. It's the AI-powered chatbot that's starting to pop up everywhere. This year, we're kicking things off with an ad that I created using ChatGPT. The rising popularity of ChatGPT. Let me tell you why this is so powerful. Like, I literally might even cry. AI has been advancing for 70 years. But suddenly, with the emergence of generative AI tools like ChatGPT, we can directly experience how they reorganize work and creativity. And back to electricity, it took a few decades for factory operators to embrace electricity over steam. But in the 1920s, we saw extraordinary leaps in productivity. And Brynjolfsson and many other experts believe that automation is doing the same thing, that we're in the middle of this generational shift in how we organize work and company operations. And as it ripples through the economy, every industry is going to be transformed. And just as with electricity, some of the great titans went out of business and new companies arose. The same thing is happening today where um, some of the big successful companies won't be able to compete and new companies will take their place. For those of us who've spent a lot of time thinking about the disruptive nature of distributed energy and decarbonization, this framing probably resonates. We are, of course, smack in the middle of a generational shift in the way we move around, power the economy, run our industry. And the reality is that we're going to come out of this shift with a lot of new powerful companies and a lot of severely weakened incumbents. So here we sit at the intersection of two sweeping technological trends that could have an enormous impact on creativity, corporate structures, economic productivity, and on the engine that drives our economy, energy. How are we going to shape those trends? Both the optimist and the pessimist make the same mistake. 
and that is that they think of the world as something that gets decided for us. They think that the technology is going to do something to us. The reality is that these technologies are tools. In fact, they're more powerful tools than we've ever had before. So by definition, that means we have more power to change the world than we ever had before. And the implication of that, at least to me, is that our values matter more than ever before. Now we have more agency. We have to think about what it is that we really want. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, two conversations from our Transition AI conference. First, an overview of the intersection of AI and electricity with Priya Donti of MIT and Climate Change AI. And then a machine learning use case for decarbonization with Google's Savannah Goodman. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And with that, I want to start our opening conversation with Priya Dante, who is the co-founder and executive director of Climate Change AI. She's an assistant professor at MIT, and she's one of the leading thinkers on this subject. So Priya, come on up. So more profound than electricity or fire. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I think AI is undoubtedly shaping, you know, many things across our society. It shapes how we, you know, interact with our phones, how we interact with information online with each other. Um, but I think echoing some of the points made in the intro there, transformation shouldn't happen just for the sake of transformation. It needs to be shaped in a way that is aligned with our societal values. So thinking about some of the other transformations that were mentioned, right, electricity, something like 700 million people around the world don't have electricity, right? Medicine, a bunch of people in the U.S. can't afford insulin. Um, and with technologies like generative AI, there's a lot of, you know, flashiness and sort of jumping on the hype train. But I, I do sincerely worry that this will lead to an AI winter if a lot of those, you know, if, if we see a lot of, you know, hype and unscrupulous promises made there that then kind of um, reflect poorly on maybe other uses of AI that are uh, very principled and do have the ability to do things like transform our electric grid. So I think fundamentally, yes, AI will play a really large role and already is, but sort of developing the technologies and policies and social structures in a way that actually shapes that transformation in the way we want is going to be critical. So let's start off the morning by talking about what kinds of AI are in use or potentially in use in the energy system. So when we talk about intelligence or automation, like frame out the, the different use cases. Yeah, so just thinking about what AI is, right? So when we talk about AI, it's any algorithm that can perform some kind of complex task. Um, and the, so this can be, you know, speech or perception or reasoning or, you know, forecasting electricity, something that's, that's a bit more on the complex side. Um, but um, there are kind of two major types of AI. One is sort of symbolic or rule-based AI, where you actually write down a set of rules and have AI reason over it. So this example of the AI that beat Gary Kasparov in chess, that was actually a rule-based system. But what we're seeing a lot today is um, the kind of other major machine uh, AI paradigm, which is machine learning. So learning automatically from large amounts of data. And so this is the type of machine learning that we're seeing kind of 
um, employed, um, you know, across the electricity system. And this includes both, you know, uh, types of machine learning that are geared towards, you know, forecasting uh, things like solar power, wind power, electricity demand, or the state of the grid based on um, kind of information that's available. And there are also types of um, machine learning that are more geared towards controlling parts of the electricity grid, actually trying to observe the state of the system and then take actions based on it. And there's some technical jargon around this, supervised learning or unsupervised learning or reinforcement learning. But the basic idea of is machine learning kind of giving you information by understanding trends or correlations in the underlying data? Or is it actually autonomously trying to or semi-autonomously trying to take an action based on analysis of the underlying data? These are the two types uh, broadly of AI that we that we often see in the electricity system. And so we just quickly sped through the, the history of AI and the different cycles. Like, where are we in the technological development cycle? Yeah, so I would say that... Um, Machine learning and AI today have been largely developed with um, kind of the kinds of data that you can find on the internet in mind. So what does it take to analyze large amounts of text data? What does it take to analyze large amounts of image data? But when it comes to transformations like in the electricity grid, what we're often dealing with is physical systems where we have to maintain some notion of safety, where we're dealing with electrons and molecules and um, electronic equipment. And so where I'd say we are is where we're in a place where machine learning and, and AI have demonstrated a lot of wins in kind of uh, prediction on yeah text Im text and image data as well as you know time series data or things where we can kind of make some kind of forecast about the future but where we're really getting to the nitty-gritty of the physical system <clears throat> we need to adopt a bit of a different approach and actually shape the way that AI is innovated on to be responsive to that. So for example, my own research um, looks at how do you actually integrate physics and engineering principles that we have on power grids and actually develop machine learning methods that inherently incorporate knowledge of that in order to be able to work with both the physics and data. So I think we're in that stage where We've demonstrated a huge proof of concept, but the kind of uh, um, adaptation of the way we do AI to different industries and the needs of those industries is still a work ahead of us. Yeah, so talk about the limitations of machine learning in a physical system, complicated physical system like the grid where you're controlling uh, you know, sensitive electronics, you're controlling power plants, you're dispatching. Like, What are those physical limitations that we need to start to work through? Yeah, so how machine learning works is basically it's analyzing a large amount of data and it's trying to find what the predominant patterns in that data are, in some sense, the, the average thing that would happen in that data. And so when you're doing something like, you know, um, predicting what an image is, if you are most of the time right, because you've gotten that sort of, sort of averages in the data right, that's great. And if every now and then you're wrong, okay. On a power grid where you have to do things like make sure that you're not asking equipment to do something it can't actually do or make sure that your power lines are not being asked to carry too much power or you're maintaining voltages or currents or stability constraints or whatever have you, averages aren't often enough. The, the fact that you can get a machine learning algorithm that learns to do something nuanced from data and does it right most of the time doesn't help you in those times when it does something wrong that one time that really blacks out your grid. So this is where kind of machine learning can help you find the predominant patterns, help you figure out what to do in the average case when things are going as usual. But in these extremal cases or, or kind of, you know, anomalous cases that may only show up, you know, little or not at all in your underlying data, that's when you need often to put guardrails to make sure that your um, algorithm is not kind of crossing some physical boundary. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, with, you know, extreme change happening on the grid and extreme weather, you start to suddenly have more anomalous events as well you need to work through. Absolutely. And so the, the, that brings us to this question of interpretability. Like if something goes wrong, um, historically, how do regulators work through a problem? And then with AI, like how do you how, how does it change the way you work through a problem and ask who is responsible for, for a problem if it's AI related? Yeah, it's a great question. So historically, um, a lot of uh, prediction algorithms on the power grid were um, based on rule-based systems. So you try to figure out what electricity demand looks like by writing down a set of rules associated with um, you know, is it, um, you know, a weekend or a weekday? Um, is it a holiday? Is there a kind of, you know, very famous TV show on where everyone's going to turn their tea kettle on right afterwards? You, you actually write down that set of rules and use it to try to create some kind of um, prediction. 
And so historically, then, if something went wrong on the power grid, if there was a mismanagement of the grid and that was in part due to a misprediction, the idea is that the regulator would ask your, your system operator to go back and say, what went wrong in your rule-based prediction? Which rule didn't hold? And how do you actually improve that for the future? Um, the kind of thing that's happening as we increasingly use AI and machine learning for these kinds of predictions is that the same kind of regulatory practice continues to be applied. So if there's a misprediction, the, the regulator will often want to know, well, what went wrong in the internals of your predictive model to cause that to have happened? And I think there's genuine debate about whether it is sort of on the technology to become more interpretable in a certain way so that you can pull out what were the weights of my um, predictive algorithm and, and you know what went wrong there or whether it is on the sort of regulatory system to adapt to the, the new reality of, is it really that we care about the weights or do we actually care about, was there data that wasn't available to the algorithm or is there something about the output performance characteristic that we can audit? So I think really getting clear about what is it that we need to know in order to both kind of, you know, assign consequences as often goes, but also more importantly, adapt to the future. Um, and really getting clear about that and making sure then we understand what needs to change on the regulation and what needs to happen to make AI and machine learning algorithms um, able to be audited in a way that fits that regulation. I think it, that there sort of needs to be innovation and change on both sides. And where do you fall on that question? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it is sort of a, a both. I think that we do need algorithms that are um, interpretable and, ro and robust, I think, right? I think many algorithms today are very brittle to kind of noise or anomalies in the underlying data in a way that isn't always visible and kind of building in robustness and interpretability or kind of more principled ways of making sure you know what your algorithm is doing, I think services a lot of these real world use cases. At the same time, I think we shouldn't necessarily be wasting our time fiddling with how do we understand the exact, you know, weight within a deep neural network to, to for the purposes of an audit if that's not actually what we need. If instead maybe the right question is, what was it about the underlying data that didn't reflect the scenario that we saw and how do we either adapt the algorithm or adapt our practices around using its output because you don't have to use its output wholesale. You can do modifications and stuff to the output. I think, again, having that conversation between mm. these two is really important. One thing that we hear a lot in the conversation around large language models um, is that like a lot of the researchers like don't exactly know how the system is making the decisions it is. Is that a do you see that as a real risk now? Um, I mean, going back to what you just outlined, like is this, is this a real tangible problem today? In that people who are developing these systems don't exactly know how decisions are being made. I think it is a, a problem, and especially it becomes a problem when you start to look at like safety critical systems. When we think about you know power grids as a safety critical system, right? Again, something where you really cannot break the system; it has huge economic consequences and you know consequences for loss of lives. But I think we actually I mean to to bring this to the you know the public conversation about about GPT. We also need to think about the ways in which language is a safety critical system, right? In what cases is it, for example, shaping someone's opinion or how they consume information or, or um, serving information that is meant to be accurate? And it's a combination of both, do you know what's going on in the model to produce it? But also, do you know what it means for an output to be good? Um, and I think having answers to this latter part, do you know what it means for an output to be good, leads to two different potential directions, one of which is engineer your underlying model or your data to kind of bias it towards outputs that meet that standard of quality or take the output of your model and then change it in a way that is um, kind of reflective of, you know, looking at whether it's meeting those standards of quality. So I think it's, again, just understanding what does it mean for an output to be good or safe or meeting the criteria that we need, and then you can both do engineering on what the model and the data look like and engineering of the, the output. So on that front, then, what does it mean to create a safety-critical, bias-free model? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, uh, I think this is very, you know, context-dependent, right? But let's think about, for example, a couple of power and energy problems here. So, when we talk about a kind of safety-critical algorithm for power grid control, we want to make sure that if we have a an algorithm that's controlling our devices on the power grid, for example, 
that the outputs are yielding power flows on the grid that, you know, meet what the grid can actually handle. Again, you're not overflowing lines, you're not causing voltages to be out of whack, um, all things like that. Um, and you also want to make sure that you're meeting certain, you know, stability constraints, making sure your grid is staying near equilibrium. So there are, you know, fields of study that actually try to, you know, write these criteria down, right, in electrical engineering and in control theory. And so if we have those criteria, engineering an AI system that meets those criteria, so what some of my work does is actually say, can we actually construct those criteria in a way that looks like a layer in a deep neural network and actually embed that layer within your neural network so that the output has some kind of guarantee on it? So I would say creating safety critical AI is, you know, really understanding what is the metric that needs to be met or the kind of requirement that needs to be met in our safety critical system. And that looks different in power grids and in language and in everything, of course. But then, um, again, like reusing that specification to to change how we actually engineer the thing in the first place. Um, bias uh, also, you know, is, is super important in a lot of ways. And it, it re- dealing with bias requires not looking not just at the, the narrow frame of what is the data and what is the kind of specific technical system, but also looking at the broader social context in which you're developing your algorithm. So, for example... Um, Machine learning is being used to predict which buildings are more likely to succeed in energy retrofits. Um, And this is really great because it helps to target our retrofitting um, activity to buildings where maybe you're going to save more energy, where you're going to expend less cost to do that. But it's worth noting that in the U.S., you know, buildings and and residences, there's a huge history of redlining, of discrimination, of inequities and underinvestment in the built infrastructure in certain communities. And so when you learn from that data to target retrofits, if you don't do this carefully, you're going to end up just biasing towards continued investment in places where that past investment has happened and as a result, it's easy and not kind of, you know, invest in making sure you're doing retrofits in, in um, you know, uh, historically discriminated against and currently discriminated against neighborhoods. And so I think understanding, again, like what is it that your algorithm is telling you, but what is the broader social context around that and making sure that the way you're using your output is is knowledgeable of that social context is important. So for example, if you know your machine learning algorithm, algorithm is always going to bias towards buildings in a certain neighborhood, well, even if it's not the best building in another neighborhood, um, if it is a good building as predicted by your algorithm, maybe due to your social criteria, you decide to do that anyway because you know that kind of distributional equity here is really important. Mm-hmm. So it, it's about not just the technology, but the sort of use and context and everything around it that needs to be shaped appropriately. Yeah, and we're going to dig into some of those ethical questions a little bit deeper later today. Um, so on the security side, can you talk about, like, what are some worst-case scenarios? Yeah, so, I mean, right now, I would say that for, for power grids, the um, kind of explosion of sensing and, and data um, creates certain kinds of risks. It increases our attack surface when you have sensors that can be tampered with, when you have autonomous algorithms that can be tampered with. Um, and tampering can either be, you know, literally messing with the algorithm or somehow messing with the input data stream in a way that's adversarial and such that you know the algorithm is going to do something incorrect. And so, I mean, in a worst case scenario, right, you you can really have kind of major, um, you know, cyber hacking of the grid and cyber attack. And there's been some kind of preliminary studies that also show that, um Often the kind of biggest um, risk case for cyber attacks is when the grid is already weak for some other reason. So you have some kind of extreme event or something that is that is natural that is happening and the grid is already operating in a bit of a kind of recovery or resilience mode in order to deal with that. And then on top of that, then you get some other kind of attack. So I think that is the worst case scenario and one that we need to, again, kind of design our policy, social and technology systems to be um, robust to. So So there are ways, for example, you can um, engineer parts of the grid to have provable guarantees against certain kinds of threat models. That's not going to work for every single threat model. But then you need to understand, okay, if the grid is vulnerable for for some other reason, what are the other kind of protections uh, or manual monitoring or whatever that kicks into place to deal with that? So there's a common phrase in AI circles, P-Doom, the statistical (laughs) likelihood that we have a doomsday scenario. What's your P-Doom for the grid? (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) 
I don't know if I have a great answer to that, honestly. Um, I think that, um, <laughs> maybe let's put it this way, conditioned or not conditioned on AI, PDUM is high for the grid, right? We are, we are dealing with climate change and extreme events. We are dealing with a lack of, you know, planning for these things, as we saw in Texas, for example. So I don't know that AI increases <laughs> the PDUM, but I think our electricity systems are, are doomed unless we do something really fundamental to transform them. Yeah, they're, they're already under duress. Um, <laughs> so one of the questions that we're going to try to answer here are like technological pathways, and then we want to talk about like integration inside companies. And so I wonder, you know, as, as there are companies in this room who are thinking about how to build AI teams, um, how to integrate them inside their companies, like how do you think about hiring personnel? What do they need to be thinking about to build infrastructure around AI? Yeah, so there, yeah, there, there are kind of a couple of different kinds of personnel that you, you need to sort of integrate AI with the use case. So one of them is um, somebody who's obviously doing the, the business case and business scoping, right? For a particular use case, we're thinking of AI. How does it fit into the broader business? How does it get integrated with everything else across the company? So that, that aspect of things. But you also need... Um, you know, there's a difference between, you know, data engineers, software engineers, and data scientists. So data engineers are the ones who will actually, you know, work closely with the underlying data to clean it, to make sure it's of high quality, to, to make sure that it actually is, is usable for large-scale analysis. Then, um, your data scientists are the ones who are actually trying to glean insight from that data in order to kind of enable whatever kind of insight is needed for your use case. And then a software engineer is the one who actually helps to maybe integrate those, those algorithms with maybe the broader product or workflow um, that they're in that um, writes things like unit tests and integration tests, things that make sure that the software is, inter is, is performing the way it should and is interacting with the rest of the ecosystem the way it should. Um, and then, of course, you, yeah, so these are often the different kinds of, of personnel you need to, to make this work, as well as um, more vaguely, like, evaluation personnel of some sort, right? The, the job of um, a AI and machine learning workflow doesn't stop at having created it. You want to understand how it's performing. Is it, um, you know, ach achieving the metrics you want? Are there any unintended consequences or side effects that need to be accounted for? And make sure that there's sort of that feedback loop between evaluation and development and redevelopment. Is it a radical redesign of teams? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's necessarily a, a radical redesign. And different companies deal with this in different ways, right? Some of them have their, like, one in-house data team that is fielding all of the data requests from across, um, across the company. And others sort of do this more, like, integrated model where you have people within different teams. I don't necessarily think it's a radical redesign, but it is an investment, right? I think kind of being... Putting putting uh, your 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 finances and your your leadership out there to hire and support um, new kinds of personnel that may not have other, like already been in the entity is not a trivial thing, and they're you know cultural things to keep in mind. For example, a lot of people coming from computer science and software are used to very kind of fast-paced, agile, move fast and break things environments. And, you know, power system operators are very, you know, safety, reliability, waterfall, you know, let's make sure things don't, if we don't have to move things and break things, we we won't. And so I think that can lead to certain kinds of cultural clashes and, and you know, lack of motivation maybe on, on the parts of certain personnel as well. And it is, um, as a result, I mean, uh, hearing from some of my power systems colleagues, they actually do have trouble hiring. And this is, you know, it, it's both pay scale, but also these kinds of considerations. And so making sure that you as a leader are equipped for maybe the, the cultural shift that uh, may occur, or just the cultural negotiations that may need to occur also becomes really important. So I want to end with a couple of scenarios about what could accelerate or constrain technological development. And, you know, we've over the last 50 years, we've seen a couple of different cycles of exuberance and then, you know, the AI winter, the pullback in actual funding and, and public acceptance or public excitement. And so here we are at this stage of, you know, extreme excitement. And um, there's a lot of question about, like, how quickly systems are going to evolve. So can you give us a couple different scenarios of what a constrained scenario looks like and what an accelerated scenario looks like? Sure. So I want to talk about maybe like three-ish things here. So um, one of them is um, thinking about um, 
the uh, kinds of, I would say, like facilitating infrastructure that is necessary to um, enable the, the development of, of AI workflows. So um, often if you're doing something like AI for optimization and control in power grids, um, you're kind of doing it in academia in a way that is based on your conversations with system operators about what they're seeing on the power grid. And you write down those assumptions and you go do this in the lab and you create your control algorithm and you're like, okay, great. It's published in a paper. Nobody's going to deploy this. Um, and basically the, the, the fact that a lot of our discussion of the realities of the, the power grid and what is needed remains in discussion rather than in kind of testing and development is a big challenge. We really need the right like data and simulation environments and test beds in order to enable this kind of research and deployment. So I would say in the best case, what would kind of accelerate AI is this kind of enabling infrastructure that creates these pathways to deployment. And that would allow a power grid that is, you know, safely and reliably in a way that we want and dynamically kind of managed by AI and machine learning in a way that enables us to integrate renewables and deal with resiliency and such. And in the worst case, we put up a lot of funding into research and it remains in papers. Um, Another axis here is um, kind of along just financial incentives in in uh, regulated uh, industries like the power uh, like the power sector, um, where today, for example, um, you know utilities and, and system operators uh, can re receive a regulated rate of return, some percentage of of the money back on kind of investments in things like you know wires in the ground, but we don't currently see that for software innovation, and we don't currently see that, for example, they they can't necessarily. Um, profit from kind of um, startups or other kinds of, you know, innovation coming in to this power system. These are sort of exogenous to the, the financial incentives of, of your system operator. And so kind of internalizing those financial incentives in the best case enables, for example, system operators and utilities to be really and enthusiastically along for the ride in terms of um, kind of uh, being financially aligned and actually facilitating the um, implementation of these transformations. And in the worst case, basically, they end up being these entities that are the receivers, but not necessarily enthusiastic co-creators. Um, and then I guess the, the the last thing that can, can uh, constrain or help, I think, is um, public perception around what AI is. So I, I think today a lot of the public perception around AI is that it is equivalent to generative AI. Um, and that is leading to kind of the development of many generative AI use cases and startups that some of them are not technologically well-informed, some of them are not well-informed from a business use case. Um, and I think what we really could see happen, as I, I kind of mentioned right at the beginning, is where a lot of these things go forward they fail because they weren't well-founded to begin with. And then that leads to a winter where AI as a whole is mistrusted and, and, and not employed, even when it's, you know, use cases that make sense or types of AI that make sense for that use case. So what I think could... Um, Accelerate AI is using this moment of, of generative AI and the excitement that is coming from it to use that as a, a an opportunity window to really kind of educate the, the public and implementers about what is not just generative AI, but what is AI as a whole? What are its strengths and limitations and benefits and risks? And how do you actually think about using AI? And I think it could be a really huge education moment that really accelerates a lot of principled use cases across society. And I think in the worst case, it could lead to, again, just this this um, hype and unscrupulous implementation and, and crashes that lead to a winter later. So mm. um, I think this education and these kinds of events try to set the narrative and, and without without the hype, I think, is, is really valuable. So to close this wrap-up, uh, we have a cross-section of investors, utilities, tech companies, startups uh, in this space. What are What is a provocative or some provocative questions they need to be asking themselves or each other at an event like this? Yeah, so I think thinking through, you know, what are the kinds of transformations that we are having that we must uh, must happen, but that we're having difficulty in practice kind of getting off the ground. So where is there maybe a, a mismatch between our vision, for example, the transformation of the grid and, and the, the practical implementation towards that vision? Um, and I think within that, then the question is, what is it that is, what is in there that maybe could be enabled by AI and analytics? And then that leads to, of course, the questions around how and what. 
But what is it that it, where it is something else, where it is some kind of financial incentive, where it is some kind of, um, you know, policy incentive? Um, and I think really teasing out what is the technology, what is the policy, what is the society aspect, how do they interact with each other, and then how do we move forward in kind of a holistic and integrated way on these? I think these kinds of questions very practically is what we need to kind of match our practice to our vision. Priya Dante, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live, interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. The reason why we're talking about AI in a meaningful way is largely thanks to computing power and data centers. Data centers have become as valuable as any kind of infrastructure. The grid, water systems, highways, they are the reason we can train powerful AI systems, and they're the reason why we can have a strong digital layer for clean energy. Now, our team here at PostScript has spent the last few years exploring the role of data centers across the economy. We make this show called Where the Internet Lives in partnership with Google. And in our first season, we met a senior staff research scientist named Anna Radovanovich, who'd been analyzing data on the real-time carbon intensity of different grids. So I was thinking, what can we do with this carbon intensity? They also knew that Google kept meticulous records of computation resources. That is, they had data on how much processing the servers were handling at any one time. Wow, we have compute load. We can directly know because we log everything at Google. So why couldn't we actually map it to power and map it to carbon footprint in real time? Which led her team to another question, a radical question. Is it possible at all to ban, shape Google load? Carbon-aware computing was born. Over the years, Google has gotten more sophisticated in how it shifts workloads and data centers. Loads like machine learning training, for example, depending on the emissions profile of the grid. And it's a core piece of the company's 24-7 carbon-free energy target. This is practically impossible if we don't shape the load. And it doesn't require a massive shift in how data centers are run. It's made possible by machine learning, which can orchestrate more subtle variations in computing in service of decarbonization. There is nothing that we fundamentally changed in how we run our data centers. There is so much technology around, but we just need to use it in in the right way. One of the people tasked with finding the right way to use these technologies is Savannah Goodman. She's the technical program manager and data software climate solutions lead for global infrastructure at Google. And I sat down with her at Transition AI to talk about machine learning and data science and how it fits into Google's decarbonization efforts. Here's that conversation. So by 2030, we aim to match our electricity consumption in every region we operate for every hour with carbon-free energy. And we've set this goal because there's research from leading institutions like TU Berlin, Princeton, IEA, that show one of the best ways for companies to help accelerate the energy transition is through 24-7 procurement. And so in 2021, we reached 66% carbon-free energy across our global data centers. And that actually includes five data centers that are operating at or near 90% carbon-free. 
So that's really the, the focus kind of our, of our, the progress towards our procurement goal. In terms of our other goal for decarbonizing grids more broadly, we have a three-pronged strategy. So the first is we're going to continue to develop innovative contracting structures that help Google, but also other consumers uh, procure carbon-free energy at scale. Second, we advocate for policies that decarbonize the grid across the world. And then third, which I'm most excited about and what I work on in my role is developing new next generation clean energy technologies. So that includes things on the hardware side like geothermal and hydrogen, but also on the software side like carbon aware compute. Yeah, so how does Carbon Aware Compute work and how has it evolved since when we caught up with Anna, uh, with Anna, it was sort of at its early stages and it's been a couple of years. So how does it work? Where are you at? Yeah, so Carbon Aware Compute is a really exciting platform that allows us to shift our flexible workloads both in time and in space now uh, in order to have those workloads be run when the wind is blowing or where the sun is shining. Um, so we're now rolling this out across our global data center fleet. Um, and the way that it works, one of the, the primary inputs that we need is a day-ahead uh, carbon intensity forecast. And we get this data from a partner of ours called Electricity Maps. They are continuously running machine learning models, uh, looking at the historical data they've collected, looking at weather data to generate these predictions. Those forecasts, in addition to load forecasts, which are created internally from statistical models, are put through a robust optimization model. And that optimization model essentially outputs a schedule that minimizes the carbon footprint of our flexible workloads across the, the fleet. Got it. And so where does that technology fit into the other machine learning and data science tools that you're developing, that you're working on specifically? Yeah, so we um, are looking at uh, AI and machine learning across a number of different uh, technologies. So the carbon-aware compute platform is really internal to data Google's um, data center operations. But we are looking at opportunities beyond you know, Google's footprint. So let me walk through three different examples where we found AI to be particularly useful in the energy space. Uh, so the, one of the, the problems that you know, we were trying to solve um, was to make our wind and solar assets more economically efficient. And um, in order to do this, we created a solution called grid intelligence. And that leverages MA, ML and AI models to generate solar and wind production forecasts using lots of historical data, again, weather data, other factors. And we run this, again, through an optimization model. So you can kind of see there's a pattern, machine learning inputs, optimization model. And that outputs an optimal dispatch schedule, essentially, or um, delivery commitments for the wind and solar assets. And that can therefore increase market participation revenue, making the projects uh, more economic. So we're using that for our own renewable energy fleet. But we're also, what's really exciting is we've started to work with NG to extend that technology such that they can use it for their own portfolio of assets. Um, the second problem I wanted to highlight is siting rooftop solar. So some of you all may be familiar with uh, Project Sunroof. This is a tool that Google has to make it easier and faster to site uh, residential rooftop solar. One of the constraints is that we don't have data across all of the rooftops across lots of geographies. Um, and so what we've been doing is piloting a solution called Super Sunroof. And the way that this works is we are using machine learning, AI, to enhance the low-resolution geospatial data. So that means in regions where we don't have as high-resolution data, we can still use Project Sunroof to site, um, site rooftop solar. So that's a really exciting kind of expansion and making rooftop solar more equitable. Um, the third one I want to highlight I think would be interesting for this group in particular, uh, given the discussion this morning, is you know, there's not really a single solution for utilities and grid operators to manage, predict, operate right, the electricity system in real time. And so at, uh, we have a company at X, which is Alphabet's Moonshot Factory, and it's called Tapestry. They are working to create a single virtualized view of the electricity system that has real-time feedback loops. And so their approach is to use a lot of the traditional grid models that are out there, but add them, add machine learning models to those uh, solutions with the goal of increasing accuracy and speed by 10x. 
So lots of interesting applications. So when you're thinking about these applications, how much are they developed for purely internal use and how much are you thinking about them to serve industry? Because one of the big goals, obviously, is if you're going to start decarbonizing the broader system, you have to work with partners, as you said. So uh, you're working with Anji. I mean, how do you scale from one partner to many and then across these three different areas? How much is the product development roadmap include getting it out to industry? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great question. So a lot of what's really great about Google is we have the opportunity to incubate solutions internally, learn you know what works, what doesn't work, work out the kinks, and then bring it to market through our different platforms, like through Google Cloud or even through some of our um, geospatial, you know, uh, Google Earth tools, for example. Um, so let me let me give a few specific examples. Actually, one is on the supply side. So we use we aggregate data sets. We use tools like Google Earth and Earth Engine to help project developers uh, cite their new energy assets. And Google Earth is an open source free tool. And so we've actually seen a lot of adoption on the developer side. Almost all <laughs> major developers um, are using Google Earth to help cite their renewable energy projects. And so we're aggregating data sets. We're looking to aggregate even more data sets to make that process easier for them. And that can help you know, increase the supply right, of, of clean energy. So we're aggregating not just the you know solar wind potential, we're also looking at geothermal, so subsurface data. We're looking at aggregating transmission line data, load centers, carbon-free electricity that's already on the grid, and bringing those together in a single view, which can help facilitate um, their development processes and planning. Um, on the consumer side, this is where we really have the opportunity to pilot within Google and then you know, bring those those solutions externally. And, you know, of course, Google is very privileged to have a pretty robust procurement team. But even so, because we have such a large global portfolio, when we're looking to scale, we need to find data and software solutions that can be tools to, to manage our, you know, to enable us to meet our goals faster. And so we've been working with partners that we've made on the data center side, like FlexiDAO, Level 10, Accenture, to pilot what we've been calling a carbon-free insights platform. And this is a platform intended to help customers along their own 24-7 journey. And it helps customers to baseline their carbon-free energy score, identify priority regions within their portfolio, figure out what their optimal energy portfolios should be, what's the most cost-efficient portfolios, but still um, carbon-free, and then actually execute on those transactions. So that's a really exciting way, again, where Google has taken what we've learned internally and brought a solution uh, to market to help others do the same. So how do you separate like machine learning from other data science tools? And like, why would you choose machine learning over other forms of data science? Yeah, and I think in this case, you know, we... We want to be very critical about what we use machine learning for versus other data science tools. We see it as a tool, you know, a tool within the broader tool set, um, including other things like optimization, data engineering, those kind of things. And so we're looking for use cases that are particularly well suited. Um, some of those, you know, what we've heard a lot today too is not only does the use case have to make sense, there has to be enough data. Um, you know, as one of the, the great axioms of modeling, right, garbage in means garbage out. So if you don't have the appropriate data or uh, high, uh, high enough volume of data or clean enough data, machine learning may not be the best tool for you to use in that instance. Yeah, so we just had a really good conversation about data. I think that is just a theme that is going to come up time and time again. So what are some examples of bad or limited data that you're working with and what would be your optimal data sets? Yeah, great question. So um, I think the good news is there's a lot of data already out there. It's more about standards to make that data easier to use and accessible. Um, and I, I'll give some examples specific to 24-7. So one example is we're working with a partner, Energy Tag, to develop a new data standard for granular certificates, which are essentially like hourly recs at Google. We call them TEKS because we like to have wonky terminology. Stands for time-based energy attribute certificates. <laughs> and TEKS are a really exciting standard because it enables consumers like Google and others to actually make third-party verifiable 24-7 matching claims. But it also creates, this new data set can create additional market signals for incentivizing new technology development like, like energy storage. So that's um, you know, one of the data sets that we're working to create through data standards with partners. 
Uh, for 24-7, from a consumer perspective, again, another key data set is that hourly electricity consumption data. And um, there's a lot of challenges with getting access to this data, even, even for Google. Um, in some, you know, in some utility regions, the data is often there, but they just don't give consumers access. In regions where consumers do have access, it's often a manual download of CSVs, so really, really not scalable, especially as we move to things like hourly matching. Um, and then finally, even in the best situations, like in Europe, there's um, API-based data hubs where you can get access in a more scalable way, but actually granting permissions to the right users within a company can be really challenging. And so that's why we're working with Linux Foundation Energy uh, to create new customer energy data standards. We're essentially trying to create um, like a green button 2.0 that's much more scalable and has much better adoption with utilities. And I think this is an example where, you know, we're, we're sort of focused on getting that data for 24-7, but if hourly consumption data was really made more widely available, it could unlock a lot of new applications for machine learning. Like, for example, if you um, have more of your demand data, you can do better enhanced load forecasting for demand response for carbon-aware compute. Mm. Um, so I started off by talking about the role of data centers specifically in training many of these AI systems. And, you know, thanks to GPUs and TPUs, we have much better, better and faster training. Um, I have been just working on this project on data centers the last few years. I've become completely enamored, enamored with how they work and how they're evolving. Can you talk to the data infrastructure, the data center infrastructure generally and what it is allowing us to do in training these models? Yeah, so we've seen, um, you know, a really exciting uptick in demand for AI and machine learning. And we are, you know, constantly improving and evolving the way that we build and manage data centers to account for this increase in demand. Um, the good news is research has shown so far that despite this uptick in demand, we're not seeing an increase in, a correlating increase in energy consumption as we had initially forecasted. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, part of the you know, reason is on the hardware side. So just one example, um, TPU version 4 is actually twice as efficient as TPU version 3. So that means you know, the amount of machine learning c compute that we can run is substantially more for less energy. And just to, to add another kind of metric there, um, compared to five years ago, we are now delivering the same amount of compute or sorry, five times the amount of compute for the same amount of electricity. So that's a really, really substantial increase in efficiency. And energy efficiency is really at, you know, Google's core. And so it's not, you know, this isn't a new problem we're trying to solve. We've always tried to have um, efficient compute. But uh, having this in uptick in demand for machine learning is just sort of accelerating those efforts and creating mm -hmm. additional innovation uh, for us to continue to, to meet those needs. That's so interesting, um, and and I've, I, I mean, I'm glad that you addressed the energy piece because I think a lot of people have this question about what uh, expansion of AI generally is going to do to energy use in data centers. And I, I think um, you know there have been some companies that have seen an up, a pretty dramatic up increase in energy use, and um, you know we can look to the increasing energy intensity of Bitcoin as one example of how that can skyrocket. And then we can look to data centers themselves where in the 90s people thought the data centers or the internet generally was going to consume 10% of um, uh, of power, but uh, it was going to account for 10% of power demand. But like in the reality, it's around 2% um, because of some of the in improvements in, in PUE and data centers. And so... Um, uh, what do you make of the question around energy use of AI generally? Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, overall, we we do see that AI can be more helpful than harmful in the, the energy transition. And the reason being, you know, there's a, numerous applications that we've walked through. I think there's lots of applications that haven't been fully figured out yet. And because there's a lot of benefits that are directly, you know, reducing energy consumption or reducing the carbon footprint, um, you know, for consumers or different applications within the grid, the and that paired with the drastic improvements in energy efficiency, um, you know, we, we really think that this is just an opportunity here and that, again, AI can be more helpful than harmful for the energy transition. So 2016, Google says we're an AI-first company. 
Um, what does that mean for product development as you think about achieving these goals? Like, what does that do to the, to the questions that you have to answer as a team if, in an AI-first company? Yeah, so we're, we're really excited at Google, of course, about the potential that AI has across many different industries, including energy. Uh, that being said, we want to avoid AI being a hammer trying to find a nail. And so for us, it's really important to find those use cases that are well-suited for these particular tools. Uh, one thing, too, I want to emphasize is it's, it's not just about having really good technology. It's also about having a solid go-to-market strategy. Um, you know, you, not only do we need to make sure that these AI tools are solving real pain points and needs, we also need to make sure that the technology can be embedded within an organization's um, existing infrastructure. So that does take, you know, a broader uh, digital transformation. And that's why, you know, efforts, that's why AI and Google Cloud, those teams are working so closely together at Google because you really need that digital transformation piece to actually bring the technology to markets and, and enable the, the real value. So in terms of um, some of the applications, let's think about forecasting, for example, with many of the projects that are serving corporate campuses or data centers, um, do you have a forecasting problem or is it just you want to improve it? What, what, what kind of improvements do you imagine and what are you actually trying to solve relative to what exists in the market today? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one thing we want to keep in mind um, is that in the for for Google, energy is a huge part of our you know operating margins, right? Like we spend we think a lot about energy. We spend a lot of money on energy. That's why we have a twenty four seven goal. So even small improvements, right, in the way that we manage our data centers and we manage our energy operations can have a really big implication on the bottom line. Um, and I think in the grid intelligence solution that I mentioned earlier, the same thing can be said too for solar and wind projects, right? So even a 10% increase in revenue because of the improved forecasts can make or break you know, new projects that then become economically feasible. So how would you, so for those of us from the outside looking in, um, how would you characterize the trajectory of AI in the applications that you're working on. So everyone obviously is looking at this AI arms race and large language models and uh, amongst the tech companies, but you're working on some of these other you know, specific concrete tools um, that are relevant to the people in this room. How would you characterize where those are going in terms of their sophistication? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of improvements in these tools, whether it's, like we've talked about, improved forecasts, you know, going back to the Project Sunroof example, increased coverage, right? We know electricity markets are so fragmented, but and we know that in order to run a lot of the exciting applications, you need good data. And so ML and AI has the potential to bridge that gap, right? Where there's where the data isn't necessarily available or accessible, it can really help spread these applications to new geographies that we hadn't initially thought would be possible without the data. Um, so I think, yes, there's there's a lot of potential, but we are, you know, carefully evaluating where it makes the most sense. I think LLMs in particular are very, very hot right now. Um, I do think there could be some interesting opportunities. For example, one, one uh, pain point that's very specific to corporates, I would say, is third-party auditing of our sustainability reporting. It's a very manual process. There's very rigid rules. It's you know, if you read even our environmental reports, there's a lot of language in them. And it feels like there's a way that that could be streamlined and maybe, uh, yeah, made more automatic with, with LLMs. I want to go back to carbon-aware computing for a second. It's a concept that's probably familiar to many, in this people, many people in this room, demand response. Uh, what kind of loads can you shift inside data centers and why? Yeah, that's a great question. So not all of our, our workloads are flexible. You know, when you put something in Google search, you obviously expect an immediate response. So there's, you know, some things like search serving load, which we aren't touching. That being said, we are, there are a number of flexible workloads. So one example that you can think about is if you're a uh, creator on YouTube and you upload a video, there's a lot of processing that has to be done. Um, that is a, a workload that could be shifted in space and time because it's not really, it's not as sensitive, right, to um, uh, the, you don't have to, you know, display it something right away, for example. And so there's a lot of number of different workloads. A lot of them actually are on the ML and machine learn or ML and AI side. So we're 
right now really taking a lot of time to evaluate the amount of flexibility for ML and AI workloads. And um, we're continuing to see how we can increase the amount, the proportion, right, of our workloads that are flexible such that we can increase the capacity of this flexible demand, not just to minimize our carbon footprint, but to also support the grid through things like demand response. So you develop a lot of these tools internally, test them, make sure that they're helpful, then go out and work with partners in different ways. I mean, it would be different um, with Anji than it would be with, you know, Tapestry working with partners. But uh, the con- conceptually, it's still the same. You know, you're developing it in-house, working with partners. What are those partners telling you about, like, what is most helpful? Um, what are you hearing from them about what they need? And how does that influence product development? I think a lot of partners are still at the stage of we just need the data, we need to aggregate it, we need to understand it. So again, there's a lot of um, the initial stages of that digital transformation journey that have to happen first. Um, So for example, right for this Carbon Free Insights platform, most customers don't even have access to their hourly data. They, you know, I was talking to a company who was like, we really want to do 24-7, it makes so much sense. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) So part of it, right, is aggregating data. And even before that, there is the education piece. So we talked in the last session a lot about kind of the communication and people aspect within a utility. That same need exists within companies. If you're the energy person at your company, you have to be able to go pitch to your CFO, your leadership, your chief marketing officer, your CSO, right? Like, hey, I want to do 24-7. And in order to do that, you need to have some data to show where you're at, where the gap is, you know, what's the business case? So I think before we get to some of the more advanced AI applications, at least for this particular use case, a lot of it is getting that fundamental education um, and initial data just, just to sort of set that stage. So we have these inherent um, physical and business model constraints that we've heard uh, in different forms today. Uh, but you're sitting inside, you know, one of the largest tech companies working on really sophisticated tools, you have this window into how this will transform industry potentially. How transformative for energy do you think these tools are generally? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of opportunity for transformation here. And I can maybe walk through a couple of specific examples, uh, again, from the corporate energy buyer perspective. So we think about energy data and software into three core use cases. The first one is, again, what we've talked about, right? Measuring emissions and tracking progress towards your goals. There's a lot of opportunity here to work with the you know, amazing and brilliant startups that are out there to help aggregate those data sets, automate those calculations, and make it more scalable. Um, I think that I mentioned already, too, the opportunity to streamline the corporate reporting process as well as the third-party auditing. That is right now actually a huge pain point, I think. Transparency is really important in this industry as we move towards net zero. And so, um, you know, that's a really big opportunity for tools to really transform and, and, and change the, the measuring and tracking piece. Um, the second kind of core use case is planning for your energy portfolio, keeping in mind the changing grid forecasts. And this is something that companies usually will pay consultants to do. They don't really have a good handle on. And I think there's a really unique opportunity here because there's so there's been a lot of development actually in open source grid models. So for example, Gen X that was made out of uh, or put out from uh, MIT and Princeton, making those easier to use, more accessible, so that corporates can start to get a handle of what the future grids look like that they operate on, so that they can take that into account as they're doing their own planning. And then I think finally, um, there's the measuring and optimizing of their actual you know, energy portfolio or load portfolio, especially at scale. So DERs has already come up a lot. I think there's clearly an opportunity to have some kind of more standardized uh, APIs, for example, that can manage different types of DERs at scale. Um, there's also the, the forecasting and optimization improvements that you know, data science and AI can, can help improve. So I think overall, there's tremendous opportunity for AI. You know, we've talked a lot of solutions, but you know, the key thing I guess I would want the audience to take away is AI is just one tool within the broader data science tool set, and we really need to leverage all of those tools in order to you know, truly uh, progress the energy transition. Absolutely, and that feeds me into my last question, which is industry partners are a core piece of what you're doing to execute on 24-7 carbon-free energy. So there's a lot of people in this room, you know, 
potential partners, people running utilities, people running uh, renewable energy companies, distributed energy companies? Like, what do you look for in partnerships? Like, what is what is helpful in terms of actual partnerships to help you execute that goal? Yeah. So we are we generally look for partners who can who are willing to do what we would call a crawl, walk, run approach. I think one of the things we've learned at Google is jumping right to the like 10x solution doesn't always work. We have X for that. That's kind of the moonshot factory. But for a lot of the sort of core use cases, it's really important to define a bite-sized piece that we can test, iterate, fail fast, move quickly on, and then scale to that next stage. And so to find partners who are willing to do those initial kind of incremental uh, steps and have that broader shared vision, right, of where we're going to go, but don't need to necessarily reach that end goal, you know, right away. I think that's something that's really important. The other thing, too, is we look for partners who are, I I would say, philosophically aligned with our theory of change. So we are, um, you know, we've seen, we're very research and data driven, as you can imagine, at Google. And there's a lot of different conversations going on right now in the industry on the best way for corporates to participate. But we look at the research, we look at the robust, you know, optimization models. And what they show is that 24-7 is really the, the best way in the future. And so we do look for partners who kind of have that similar, you know, research data-driven mindset and can align with that, that future that we see for ourselves. Savannah Goodman, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's going to do it. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who came to the Transition AI Conference. We're going to have another one in October in New York with an expanded focus on project developers, uh, building teams around AI inside companies and uh, the financial sector. And then we'll, of course, have more grid applications and we'll talk to utilities and, and startups of a wide range. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of PostScript Media and Canary Media. This episode was produced by me and Sean Marquand. Sean Marquand's our engineer. He wrote the theme song, and he scored this episode with original music from Echo Finch, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sounds. PostScript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And hook us up with a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Stay tuned for our next event in October. Uh, Hit us up on social media if you have comments, and I will catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. (laughs) 